and turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, I got some, uh, what might be exciting news, I, I, I don't know. Uh, Lord willing, by this evening, we will be done with our study of the biography of David. Um, I, I counted earlier this week, it's, it's like 60 sermons or something like that. It was uh, y- y- your poor souls. Um, but uh, not the longest series. I once did 100 sermons to the Gospel of Matthew at, at the Goshen where I started before. So it could be worse, right? You remember that's my advice to young men is not to prove that uh, your, your girl couldn't do better, but that she could do worse, right? So that's, that's, that's what I'm giving y'all. First uh, Kings chapter two, what we want to do, we want to read um, the first, uh, uh, let's just read the first two verses. We'll finish all the way through verse 12 uh, this evening. So if you will stand with me out of reverence to God's word, uh, we'll look at the first two. The writer of first Kings writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chapter two, beginning verse one. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask, as always, that as we gather this morning, you would faithfully and graciously um, open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would become more like Jesus. We gather to be like Jesus. Through your spirit will it happen. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My wife and I have been together now 22 years, and uh, for most of that, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, 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 she, she's very blessed. And so um, I have spent most of those 20 years really by myself, right? As, as the outsider, you know, coming in, Really, the only other person I have uh, that is that is uh, the outlaw is is my brother-in-law's wife. And there are times that she and I will look at each other like we married into this. Right. I mean, we made that choice. It's not like we were blind to what was about to happen. And, and so we've learned to just let the river rats be, be the river rats. But uh, more recently, our nieces who were infants, some not even born whenever we first started dating, they're, they're now getting married and in serious relationships. And I do feel like that. I don't want them to be unaware of what they are getting into. And so I've been trying to give them some, some good advice. So, so young men here, you may want to write these things, things you can say to your significant other, okay? So this is good. You need to put it in, in your notes and, uh, and whatnot. Here it is. So, so we, we sat down with them. So here's a few things to say. Number one, you need to calm down. That works well. That works really well. You're in an argument, something like that. That just works well. If that doesn't work, you should try something like, you're starting to act like your mother. That so were those amens I heard in those grunts, right? And if, uh, or, or the one my father-in-law has used so well over the years, uh, so if it works for him, it must work for everyone, is I don't slice tomatoes. That's a woman's job. And some amens there? Okay, all right. Well, I better stop it there, right? Now, for the record... That is terrible advice, right? <laughs> you know, like if, if you're like, oh man, that's good. No, no, that is not good, right? You know, go another direction. Bypass that exit. Don't go near that exit. Take a different route. Go around in a different state. Avoid those whatsoever, right? 
Uh, we say those, those jokingly, but, 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 but there is something about giving advice to the next generation. That as we move forward, we want to understand those who are coming behind us under, have some model of wisdom by which to, to live their lives. And one of those good words of wisdom I can give you is, don't do the things I just told you to do. Okay, that, that, would, that would be a good wisdom. But what you have here in this last chapter of the life of David is that David shares for the very last time all the wisdom he has in a nutshell to his son. And not just any son. This is his heir. Solomon will take David's throne, and he is called to pick up where David leaves off. And as we'll see this morning, and we'll finish it, Lord willing, this evening, is David gives three words of advice. We'll look at the first one here this morning, and it is simply to be strong, to be strong. It's right there in the text. David said to his son, I am about to go the way of all the earth, verse 1, be strong, or rather verse 2, be strong and show yourself a man. Now, this exhortation to be strong is not unique of David. It is not unique to uh, David in the Bible. It's found really all over the place, both the Old and the New Testament. Let me give you just a few examples here for our purpose. Moses, in his final sermon to the Israelites, the book of Deuteronomy, near the end of Deuteronomy, he, he, he encourages both the Israelites and more specifically Joshua to be strong. Be strong, courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the people who occupy the promised land. He then tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land the Lord has sworn to the fathers to give them. Be strong, be courageous. The psalmists give us the same exhortation in two occasions. Wait for the Lord, Psalm 27. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord, Psalm 31. Be strong, let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. What do you think the psalmist wants us to do? Waiting for the Lord might require a little bit of strength. The prophets do the same thing as they minister throughout Israel. Isaiah, for example, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Or consider Isaiah 41. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Daniel O oh man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong, be of good courage. So we see throughout Scripture, the people of God are called by God to bear strength, to be a people of courage. Spiritual fortitude, as, as I've found, is rarely addressed in American evangelicalism. Yet, when you read Scripture, it's found all over the place. And this isn't all of them. The Bible over and over again says that the people of God must bear strength. And it is not an accident that when David has, through shortened breath and, and being cold and knowing his, day, his days are numbered, he wants his son to know, first and foremost, you must be strong. What I want us to do for the rest of the time that remains is to look at exactly what does it mean to be strong. We understand it as a slogan, but do we understand what it means practically? We, of course, will use the Bible for each of these points. The first point, practically speaking, of what does it mean to be strong, is that God's calling requires strength. God's calling requires strength. When Moses was 
ministering to Joshua, preparing Joshua to take over the reins of shepherding the people of Israel out of Egypt and finally into the promised land. His message to Joshua is simply to be strong. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and courageous. You shall lead the people into the promised land. Notice what Joshua needs to fulfill the calling God has upon his life is strength, divine strength. Now, one might think that, and to think that, well, leading the people of God, well, that's, that's got to be pretty easy, right? I mean, I mean, maybe you need a, a seminary degree, I don't know, but it's got to be easy to lead the people of God. After all, the people of God are holy and righteous and faithful and so nice until you read the Bible. Until you meet a church member, right? God's calling, even with God's people, requires strength. Ask Nathan what sort of courage it took to confront David, the man after God's own heart, about his sin. Ask Elijah the prophet what courage it took to confront the prophets of Baal and the king and the queen of Israel in his day. Ask John the Baptist what courage it took to confront Herod, who's supposedly the king of Israel. Ask the martyrs. Ask the apostles. Ask the saints of old. What sort of strength and courage it takes to fulfill God's calling in our lives. You have been called by God, and it will require strength. Your role as a husband or a father, a wife or a mother, a young man or a young woman, an employee or an employer, a church member, citizen, public figure, whatever it might be, God has called you to where you are. And that calling requires great strength. And as we sink into an even greater pagan abyss, the church will need to raise more strong leaders, those with a strong calling upon their lives. But for every member, every person of God, it will require great strength to navigate these dark waters we are sinking in. There is nothing easy about God's call. The second thing is we see what the Bible says about strength is that uh, godly leadership requires strength. Again, we could go back to, to Joshua. I have several examples, but I cut it down to just one. Uh, it actually just one of, of three we, we could look at. Uh, Joshua 1, 9, he's, he's looking at, at, at the people of Israel, and he says, I've commanded you to be strong and courageous. Well, remember, Joshua was commanded to be strong and courageous. And that calling for leadership is on his life. Now he's looking at the Israelites and says, you must have this sort of thing. So here you have a leader calling those he's leading and shepherding to rise to the occasion. Leadership requires strength. Shechaniah said the same thing to Ezra in Ezra 10. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. I just love that, right? I mean, this is as simple as you can get. Like, get up, get her done, right? That's the way we would say it in the South, right? God has called you to this. You are our leader, and leadership requires strength. Haggai says to both Zerubbabel and Joshua, Zerubbabel being a sort of governor under the Persian Empire, 
and uh, Joshua, the high priest, following the Babylonian captivity. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoaz, the high priest. Be strong, everyone in the land, all you people in the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, the task that God has given them requires strong leadership in Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua to build the wall, that's the story of Nehemiah, to build a temple is what Haggai and, 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 and Ezra are about. But it will require strength among the people. But the people won't be strong unless its leadership is strong. The people won't be courageous unless the leadership is courageous. Solomon here in this text is being tasked to rule. He's being asked to lead, and he is expected to lead them well. And to lead them well, he must be strong. Leadership is not a small or easy task. It is wrought with risk. Not everyone, for example, is on board with the leadership's vision, approach, or style. I shared with someone earlier today that one of the things I love about East Frankfurt is, is, is we, we mesh, or at least we have for the last eight years until those jokes are early on. Um, uh, but we've, we've meshed, right? You have a good sense of humor. You, you're passionate about outreach and you're, you're patient with me, right? right? We, we mesh. But, but there are other churches that, that are, are led by godly leadership. Godly men would mesh. And it isn't because they're terrible or I'm terrible. It just wouldn't work out. You and I have watched enough college basketball sports in general. You've seen this. You've seen a qualified coach with years of experience and success change programs, and they're a disaster. It's because they forgot how to coach. There's different leadership styles. There's different visions and approach and all that. And that's the challenge with leadership, isn't it? Or in leadership, some prefer gentle leaders. Some who will... Wrap your arm around you and say, you know, I think we could do a little better. Why don't we try this? Others want a more abrasive leaders. Someone to come in and says, we're going to crack some skulls is the way it's going to be, right? People want different type of, of leadership. My dad shared with me that he is as high up as he can go in his company uh, and still do like manual labor, right? The next thing up is administrative stuff. He says they wouldn't do it. And of course, I know why. And I was like, well, dad, why wouldn't they hire you for, for an office job? He goes, I'd fire everybody the first day, right? That's an abrasive leader, a bit too abrasive, right? Well, dad, you need to build teamwork. You need to build good relationships. And you need, I don't care. They ain't doing their job, right? You're like, okay, don't, don't, you're fine. Just stay where you are. <laughs> Retire. Stay where you are, right? You, you don't, you don't need, need to be doing Some love that, right? Well, crack some skulls sort of approach. Some, some, some don't. Some don't want change. Others want everything to change. And by the way, they'll be in the same congregation. They'll be in the same place of employment. They'll be in the same business. They'll be in the same culture. And some expect leaders to micromanage, to overlook every little thing. Some expect to, to be more distant and, and to delegate. Leadership is fraught with risk. And leaders are easy targets for critics. Critics are people who can hide behind the veneer of courage, but are too cowardly to lead themselves. This is what I've found about the critic. The critic can safely say behind the keyboard or through the text machine and say, you should be doing this. You ought to do it like this. I remember when things were like that. But when asked, 
are unwilling to lead themselves. I got a little trick. I'm going to give you one of my little secrets about ministry. Is this. If someone says, a preacher, we needed to be doing this. And my answer is, you know, I think it's a great idea. It's clear to me the Lord has called upon your life to lead us in that direction. Usually what you will find with the critic is suddenly they're unavailable. Critics love to go after leaders. Teddy Roosevelt rightly said, it is not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. When critics attack, and they attack ferociously and frequently, it is imperative for leaders to steady the ship, to be transparent but not dominated, to be meek yet firm. It requires them to be strong. And there are some here who refuse to lead in any part of their lives simply because you lack strength. Maybe there's some men here. You've been failing to lead in your home because you lack the courage and the strength it requires. Maybe some fathers, maybe some, 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 some leaders at work. You're not going to take the risk that leadership requires. You lack the strength that is necessary. Leadership is not for the weak. The godly leader must possess the fortitude to lead with both conviction and confidence. Solomon will face enemies from within his kingdom and outside of his kingdom. He will face self-doubt. He will face constant criticism. And he will face threats on his life and on his rule. Yet without strength, he to mention us, will falter. Thirdly, godless, godliness, let me correct that, not godlessness, okay? Godliness, okay, yes. Godliness requires strength. Godliness requires strength. We go back to times of Moses and Joshua. Moses, when he hands down the law, tells the people of Israel, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in, take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. Notice the context is you have received the commandment. Now go and obey the commandment. The commandments are both the Mosaic law and the exhortation to go and take possession of the land. Both are important within that text. And this is why I find it odd that... We consider those um, who are hedons and our hedonistic culture, we describe them as bold. We describe them as brave, courageous, radical. Have you noticed this? If, 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 think about it. Which requires more courage? A drag queen showing up at the preschool or refusing to bake the drag queen preschool hour muffin? Which one requires a little bit more strength, right? No? But, if, but if you're the drag queen, like, bold, courageous, strong. Yeah, it's really strong and courageous when everyone's clapping you along the way, right? Have you noticed this pattern? We, we label courageous that which is easy to do. And we label cowardly that which is hard to do, particularly when it comes to morality. It is courageous to stand before a pagan culture and its infrastructure of hedonism and say enough is enough. That takes strength. 
That takes courage. When everyone is saying, doing it like this, when everyone's saying, you're behind the times, when everyone is, 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 is upon you, faithfulness, righteousness, holiness, obedience, godliness require strength. To live by your convictions, to obey Christ, to fear God over men, that is a strong Christian. In the fourth century, Christianity was really reeling from a very dangerous heresy known as Arianism. The modern Arians are known as Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They were making the same arguments as the old heretics were. But Arians, Arianism was really growing, and Arians essentially denied the full deity of Jesus. They, they considered him the, the first created being in history and all that. Well, one man, essentially, a man by the name of Athanasius, you have to spell it right, it'll be on your quiz at the end. Athanasius said, no, 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 this, this, this isn't biblical, it's not right. And yet, despite his continued effort to stand against the rising tide of Arianism, he continued to be pushed back by the powers that be and the elites and everyone else. But he kept saying, no, Christ is Lord. Christ is divine. Christ is king. At one point, a friend came up to him and says, Athanasius, don't you know, the whole world is against you. And he responded famously, well, then Athanasius is against the whole world. It takes strength to live and lead with your convictions. I'm just going to let you know that you and I will increasingly be pressured and threatened to compromise biblical fidelity. Be strong. Be courageous. You will be tempted to compromise biblical values. And it will get worse as with each passing day. Be strong, be courageous. And can I say finally, good men require strength. I don't mean to read the text too literally, but do you mind if I do that? Well, what did David actually say to Solomon? Let's read it again. I am about to go, this is verse two, the way of the earth, be strong and show yourself a man. Am I reading into the text that David sees in his son a man, and that word means something, who was called to be masculine. And part of that masculine responsibility is to be strong. Strong in his person, strong for his family, and strong for his nation. That David is calling on his son to be a man. And whether you like it or not, David links Solomon's strength with his masculinity. And until recently, that was an obvious point. It's never been believed that women cannot or are not strong. In fact, remember that the story of Samuel begins with a strong woman pleading with God for a child. And she stood up against a dude, Eli, who thought she was drunk. No, 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 no. I'm being strong here. There are plenty of strong women in the Bible as there have been throughout history and here today. But what we see here is the instruction to a young man that his masculinity carries with it the burden of leadership and responsibility. I got a good friend of mine. I'm, I'm going to do this with my son, so I'm going to ruin it for him. Is, is when his son started dating, went out on his first date, he took a Sharpie, wrote on his arm. I'll do it if, if, if it's me because you don't know who my friend is. Uh, it, would, it, it would be C 
M-M. And he explained to his son, the C means you're a Christian. And, that Christ, and because you're a Christian, you are held to a certain standard. You, you are called to be obedient to Christ. So your, your goal here is not for your own glory and kingdom building. It's not for your own pleasure, but for that of Christ. You're a Christian when you go on this day. Act like it. Secondly, your last name, McDaniel, is, is a name given to you. And with that comes a history of honor and respect and integrity that you dare not ruin or bring shame upon. Thirdly, you're a man. And men are called to lead in a certain way, treat women a certain way. And, and as you go on this date, remember, you're not just a Christian. You're not just a McDaniel. You're a man. And with that comes certain responsibility. In case you think I'm reading into this text, Paul, the Apostle Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 16, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. And be strong. Act like men. If we were to summarize masculinity in a single word, which may be a dangerous thing to do, perhaps the word would be responsibility. Other words might work as well. Duty, leadership, or strength. Women are called to, lead, to, to, to nurture, to love, to, 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 to other uh, courage and strength and everything else. Yet men are uniquely called to, the off, to these sort of offices. Far too many men have cowardly uh, acquiesced the responsibility of their masculinity to a feminized society. I don't know why it's so hard for us to figure out. But ladies, you cannot outmen men. And men, you cannot out-ladies the ladies. I don't understand why that is controversial and not obvious. Society needs men. Society needs women. And here, David looks at his son. He says, you must be strong. Be a man. Young men, you have a duty. Brothers, you have a duty. Husbands, you have a duty. Fathers, you have a duty. I think I could prove this not just biblically, but uh, sociologically. The, the, the statistics bear this out. The number one sociological, cultural, moral, and I would say political problem in this country is fatherlessness. Absent fathers is outside of, you know, we need Jesus, but... but the number one problem is fatherlessness. Let me give you some sobering statistics. Fatherless children represent 63% of teen suicides. They represent 70% of juveniles in state institutions. They represent 71% of high school dropouts. They represent 75% of children in chemical abuse Centers. They represent 90% of rapists, 85% of youth in prisons, and 90% of homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. There's more to say to this. They are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager, and they are at a 120% greater risk to be the subject of abuse. Because what happens is, daddy's out of the picture, mama knows. We need a daddy in the picture. So he runs off to another man who has no real moral or, or, or personal obligation to the child, which feeds the cycle of abuse. 
Fatherless children have higher rates of depression, higher rates of divorce, higher rates of substance abuse, lower educational performances, lower life expectancy, lower average income, lower job security, lower levels of health. Right now, roughly one-third of children growing up in America live without their fathers present in the home. Forty percent of these children have not seen their father in over a year. That's a problem. It's a major problem. It's the most fundamental problem of our society. But to address it makes you a bigot. And to address it, you seem to be saying women can't hold up and be a father. And I'm going to take, ladies, you can't. That's not your calling. Men are called to this. Men are called to be men. So that, ladies, you can have the freedom to be women. If you want to address all the issues, nearly all the issues of our society, prisons are full, homelessness continues to decline, poor performance in education, that right there. In fact, when COVID happened and everyone had a goal of do virtual school at home, you want to know what, what children did the best through virtual school? Children with a mom and a dad. That's not rocket science. Could have told you that in 2018 or 19. No politician can fix this. No legislature can fix this. No technological advancements can fix this. No community action can fix this. Police can't fix it. Social workers can't fix it. Educators can't fix it. The media can't fix it. Abortion won't fix it. Pastors can't fix this. Men can. Men can. Strong men protect women. Strong men raise children. Strong men make for a better society. Men. No wonder then David, when he summarizes three final words to his son for him to always remember and to carry out. The first was, be strong. Be strong. There's a lot of weak people around you, but you be strong. A lot of challenges you will face, you be strong. A lot of temptations will come your way. Be strong. Be strong. Be the man. Of all the great reformers of the 16th century, my favorite is, without a doubt, John Knox, the bearded Scotsman. He is, without a doubt, the most courageous of them all. They're all courageous because they risk their lives to proclaim salvation by faith alone. First time he shows up in history is he's yielding a double-edged sword ready to fight the Catholics, right? I mean, the first time he shows up in history, okay? He is, he's, he's a bodyguard, double-edged sword ready to go to war. He was locked up in a, in a castle that the Catholic kingdom had surrounded. They wanted the guy he was guarding, George Wisher, and he was ready to go to the death swinging that sword. So George Wisher pulled him aside and says, you know, now, now's not the time. And he, he had Knox escape. Castus then came, took Wishart, and I believe he was burned at the stake. As a result of all that, he was turned into a French galley slave. That is a hard life of suffering. On one day, the, one of the uh, ship captains or someone on the ship required all the French galley slaves to pay their devotion to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so grab the statue, you had to go around, you had to venerate the statue, you had to kiss the statue, do all the stories. It came up to John Knox. John Knox grabbed the statue and flew it out into the, the sea. At which point he said, let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. 
let her learn to swim, right? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a bold move there. Well, he would eventually return to Scotland and be exiled due to Bloody Mary's reign, where he went off to Geneva. But in 1552, Knox returned to Scotland from exile in Geneva. And he immediately walked into a tense and dangerous situation. He made his way to St. Andrew's Church intending to preach, but along the way he was threatened by a bishop that if he did preach, he would be greeted with a 12-gun salute. Quote, the most part of which would light upon his nose. Right. That sounds bad. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I am Scottish, I guess, but not that Scottish. So as a result of this threat, his supporters encouraged him, don't, don't go to St. Andrew's and preach. But he did it nonetheless. Quote, this is from Knox himself. My life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. I desire the, the hand nor weapon of, of no man to defend me. I only crave an audience, which if it be denied here unto me at this time, I must seek to where I may have it. So if God has called me to preach and the message I have is a threat to them, then it is more imperative that I preach. He then preached, still in St. Andrews, he preached, despite the threats, on Jesus turning over the money changer tables in the temple. I mean, he could have gone the Jesus loves you route. No, he went through, we got to tear this place down a route. Knox was a pastor feared by his opponents until his very death. Mary, Queen of Scots, has a great quote where she says that my greatest fear isn't a thousand armies, it is the single prayer of John Knox. One congregate said that John Knox was the voice of one man, is able to, in one hour, to put more life in us than 500 trumpets continuing blustering in our ears. At his funeral, one man gave the, the eulogy, there lies he who never feared the face of man. We need more John Knox beards in our churches. We need more John Knox beards in our homes. We need more John Knoxes among the people of God. If you still don't believe me, the Apostle Paul would agree. In Ephesians 6, in the context of spiritual war, he says to the entire congregation, man, woman, and child, be strong in the Lord. And where will you find that strength? You'll find it in his might. So be strong. Let's pray.